Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. So therefore, we don't keep our brother. We don't reach to our brother. We back up and we say some little pious thing, I'll pray for you. That's good. But prayer without legs, without action, when we have legs and we can take action, am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. Through worship, he'll open our eyes. We'll begin to see people as God sees them and see ourselves as God sees us. The truth is, everyone worships something. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today on The Winning Walk, Dr. Young begins his message, Rejected, explaining how you were made for worship and why it's vital you keep your heart centered on God. Stay with us. The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young begins in just a moment. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Rejection. I hear how great thou art. So many things comes to my mind through the years. I think of Cliff Barrows with the Billy Graham Association when they were in London. Someone kept telling him there's a little old lady in the backside of Great Britain who'd written these great songs and would he drive out there on their only day off after months and hear her and he did and he heard a lot of songs and she sat down and played how great thou art. He said, that's it. He took it back and George Beverly Sechet began to sing that. I had the privilege of certainly pastoring Cliff and I did George Beverly Shea's premarital counseling when his first wife died and he married his second wife. And that was quite an experience. So, but primarily I think of that when I was preaching my first revival in Belzona, Mississippi way down in the Delta, First Baptist Church, and it was full of young people. And I was preaching and I used voluminous notes to show my scholarship. <laughs> and the choir was singing, the youth choir, How Great Thou Art. And when they sang, When Thunders Roll, right there at the beginning, every light in that little town of Belzona went out as lightning hit a transformer. And there I was, my first revival, all of my notes, pitch black dark, full church. That's when I began to preach without notes. <laughs> and I've been doing it ever since. So a lot of uh, memories when I hear that. Another aside, I practiced that a little bit and I put that down and Winston thought it was a big bone he'd been looking for <laughs> all his life. 
shofar. Read your Bible, look in your concordance, look up shofar, and you'll see that all the way through the Bible, the shofar was sounded as a call to worship. Over and over and over again, all different styles of worship and celebration, they would blow the shofar and the people would gather in the tabernacle, the temple, and houses to worship. It was a universal call of worship. Even the Bible tells us in the second coming of Jesus Christ, when God brings down the curtain of history, the shofar will be sounded. A lot of history behind the sounding of the shofar as a call to worship. Human beings only are the only thing created on this planet that has the capacity to worship. Nothing else can worship. We can worship. We're humans. Everybody does worship. Something or somebody. Go in the backside of Manchuria. They've never even heard the name of God. They still worship. Everybody worships something or somebody on the face of the planet. And when you look at the Garden of Eden, there in the moment of beginnings, you see what the major problem was. Well, we're familiar with that story, most of us. God put one prohibition there, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. We know they fell to sin. And then you read in the eighth verse of the third chapter of Genesis, these words. And they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I love that little verse. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's a fabulous verse. This is after they had sinned. They had done their own thing. They wanted to play God. And now they hear the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What was God doing in the garden? I think God walked in the garden the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, maybe for decades or eons. They were going to worship in the presence of the true and the living God. Worship. Magnificent. But then we're told in a prior verse that Adam and Eve had gone into hiding and God shows up in the garden, says, Adam, you, you've always been here. You've always looked forward to this meeting, this time of sharing, this time of communion, this time of fellowship. Adam, Adam, I, I, where are you? Adam said, I hear the voice of God, by the way. They heard his steps, and now Adam says, I hear his voice. You know what I think God was doing? I think he was singing. I do, I do, I do. 
I do. I think he was singing. And God was singing, and, and God says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I'm afraid. I'm naked. I'm hiding. God went to worship with Adam and Eve, and they were afraid, naked, and hiding. Does that sound uh, weird to you? Strange? Why they wouldn't want to meet with God? If I went out here and just picked anyone and brought that person up, and I said, my dear brother, or my dear sister, I've got an appointment for you with God right now. I'm going to take you to meet the true and living God. What would be, be careful, your response? And this could be anybody here, anybody here, anybody here. I think most of us tragically would respond like Adam and Eve did. We'd say, Lord, uh, I'm afraid. When you lose the fear of God, ladies and gentlemen, you've lost something very, very sacred. That happens when we treat God casually. We speak of him in a pedestrian way. That's the reason when somebody said, you know, I had a little talk with Jesus. Ha, 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 ha. Or somebody up there likes me. Oh, isn't that great and good? Are we going to have a come into Jesus moment? Haven't you heard that kind of, I think, almost profane nonsense? If I could take you or I would go into the present living God, I think our response would be much like Adam and Eve. I do. I do. We'd be afraid. Fear. This is the one who spoke. And the cosmos came into effect. I mean, it's God. God, almighty God. We'd be afraid. We'd be afraid. And I think we'd realize we're naked. That's not necessary physical nakedness. That means we're transparent. We go in the presence of God. He knows the past, the present, and the future about every single one of us. And then we would go into hiding because we'd be transparent. We'd be naked. It's amazing how we still try to think God doesn't know everything. <laughs> you know, I remember years ago, uh, talking to a Jewish man in a department store, and, and we'd been visiting for a while. I did not know him, and he told me he was not a practicing Jew. He no longer went to the synagogue. Then he told me about some personal problems he had. And after a period of time, I felt comfortable, and nobody was around. I said, could I pray for you? He said, no, 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 no. I don't want God to know where I am. <laughs> True story. He was deadly serious. God is omniscient. He is omnipresent. 
That's the reason we don't have to pray that sort of shibble of prayer you hear. Lord, you're welcome in this place. Let me tell you, God was here before we got here. God is here now, and God will be here after we left. He is omnipresent. If we met with God, we'd be much like Adam and Eve, I'm afraid. God met to worship with us. Be fear, it's an awesome God. We'd be transparent, no secrets. I mean, if anybody stand up and tell us every single thing about your life or my life, whew, oh man, oh, I don't want to be naked before, before anybody. I, oh, look at all of this. We try to hide. And therefore, worship didn't take place with Adam and Eve because of sin. What does it take for worship to take place, for true worship to take place? The psalmist tells us in Psalm chapter 24, he said, who will ascend to this holy place? He said, who will stand before the living God and he tells us exactly what it takes to worship, to stand before God, to be with God. He said, you got to have clean hands. This means we got to be morally right. Whew. That's a pretty good assignment, isn't it? Had to be morally right, clean hands. You got to have a pure heart, your motivations. Why do we preach sermons? Why do we sing solos? Why do we do anything. What's our motivation behind it? Is it pure? Pure heart, motivation. That's frightening, isn't it? What motivates you? What motivates me about anything? And then he goes on to say, you can't have any idols. In other words, if anything in your life or my life has priority before the living God, that's an idol. A wife, a husband, a, a son, a daughter, a vocation, a reputation, your health, your hobby, uh, whatever it is, anything or anybody that has a higher place in your life and my life becomes an idol because God, if we're to worship him, has to be primary, central, and the first cause. Every life. And then the psalmist says on top of that, <laughs> same place, Psalm 24, we have to live on the basis of truth. Truth. Now, that's a good one. Every year, Webster puts out a brand new word. They coin a word, and it's called the word of the year. The word this year is post-truth. Isn't that something? Uh, Webster says we live in a culture where we have post-truth. In other words, truth is antiquated. It's out of date. It doesn't really apply. There's no such thing as real, objective, clean, standalone truth. You see, you've got your truth, and I've got my truth. You think this is right, and I think this is right. And that's how we operate. So he says this word has been coined because we live in a culture of post-truth. Truth's no longer relevant. Truth is no longer absolute. God says, you have to be a person of truth. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth. 
and the life. No stuttering there, no hesitation there, no see the fine print in the bottom there, no situationalism there. Truth. That's what it takes to worship. Clean hands, pure heart. God, number one in your life. Your life is based on truth. You see, when we go before God, we may give our gifts, sing our songs, pray our prayers, read our Bible. But unless we have a kind of transparency in our life before him, because he already is transparent as he looks at us, we can't worship. The problem in the Garden of Eden is Adam and Eve could no longer worship and because of that, judgment came on in, and they were kicked out of the garden, punted out. Angels, fiery angels, cherubim, guarded the gates. Now they were outside on their own. And here we have, theologically, what is known as the fall of man, and we've been falling with, with them ever since we came in this world because nobody here had to learn how to lie, cheat, lust, be duplicitous, to be egotistic. Nobody had to teach you and me how to do it. We just, it was built in from the beginning. That is original sin. That's the fall of man. So we see here the problem in the garden was one of worship. They couldn't worship. And we're made to worship. And then we see worship is compounded in the family. We see the fall of individuals in the fall there in chapter number three, and we see the fall of the family in chapter number four. And we're going to look at this very carefully. So stay with me. We're going deep into a mind, but down at the bottom of that mind, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to find some gold from Almighty God. Watch it. Chapter four, Genesis. By the way, if you're going through the Chronological Bible, this is about page four or five. See, I'm behind you. If you're reading chronologically, we're already the book of Job, aren't we? Oh, yeah. So hang in there. I'm lagging behind, but I'll catch up in a hurry. Chapter four, verse one. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. In the Hebrew, it says, Eve says, I have acquired. They have added from the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? Almost like Eve is saying, I fulfilled 315. I have brought forth a man. I have done it. And this man will be the one, sort of a pseudo Messiah, that will get us back in the garden. Man, Eve thought, boy, how are we going to get back in the garden? Man, this man is going to get us back in the garden. And I, I have done it. I've done it. And then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller after the ground. The word Cain means gotten, gotten. The word Abel means breath. Really, it means a whisk of breath. So now we have Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain followed his father, he was a farmer. And Abel became a shepherd. Good vocations, isn't it? 
And now we look what happened. Cain and Abel went to worship, and it's wonderful. Adam and Eve had taught them the necessity of worship. It says, and in, and in the process of time, it came to pass. In other words, evidently they went to the altar, which most people believe, no biblical basis, was right outside the garden. And, and Abel and Cain, and Cain and Abel went to worship the Lord. Adam and Eve had taught their boys the necessity of worship. They knew what happened to them when they were unable to worship because of sin. And it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of the fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, and the Lord did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, for a long time, I have taught this, I think, inaccurately. I apologize for that. We've always heard there the problem with the offering was that Cain brought produce. He was a farmer. And Abel brought a lamb. He was a shepherd. And because God sacrificed the lamb or the animal and made skins for Adam and Eve in the garden, this is a part of the blood that's necessary for there to be worship before the Lord. Now, my problem with this now is I've studied this is pre-Mosaic law. And I firmly believe that if Cain, for example, had said to Abel, I'm going to give you some corn and some beans and some watermelons and if you'll give me one of those lambs to offer. And certainly they were bartering. They were brothers. You know, they didn't eat only meat or vegetables. They would barter. They lived in the same family, though they had different vocations. But I think if that had happened and, and Cain had offered a blood sacrifice, I think it had been the same results. I do. Because this offering was not an offering for sin, Cain or Abel's. It was an offering, a dedication offering, which means I come and this offering is a symbol of giving my whole self to God. It's like marriage. When you get married, you, you give your ring to your mate and your mate gives a ring to you. And by giving that ring, you're saying, I give all of me to you. And your mate says, I give all of me to you with no hidden relationships back here. It's a totality. These are dedication offerings. One, fruit of the ground, farmer. One, a lamb. And he says that God had no respect for the offering of Cain, but God had respect for the offering of Abel. And so we go back, well, because of the blood. And certainly the offering of Abel must have been very dramatic. You know, sheep sort of identify with humans. Sheep are so dependent as animals. And you can see one of the finest, the finest of the flock, Abel have gotten that little lamb and the lamb with the liquid eyes and the warmth and suddenly he took a knife and cut its throat and the blood was shed. And this offering was centered on the lamb and the quality of the offering of Abel, that's so important, and God received that offering. But here's the offering of Cain. It said God rejected, God did not respect that offering. Now, what was going on here? 
It follows up. It says what Cain did when he understood God did not respect, did not accept his offering, is that Cain got angry, he got mad, and his countenance fell. He went into deep depression. Now, I have battled with that through a zillion commentaries, and none of them have given me a sensible answer. But finally, I believe under God, I've got it. I couldn't figure out why in the world Cain, God says, I do not respect your offering, became so angry and went into depression. Now, as a metaphor, you could say that Abel's offering, smoke came up from it, and the smoke was a sweet flavor to the Lord, and, and Cain's offering, the smoke went down and had a stench to it, and that's all speculation. It's good preaching. It's just not good exegesis. Why did Cain get so mad? Let me tell you why. It's what his heart and his hands and his life said about the offering he gave. I think Cain's offering was a big offering. I think he had watermelons. I think he had plums. I think he had flowers. He had daisies. He had pears. He had all kinds of fruit and vegetables. And I think he spread that offering out on the altar. And I think... Everybody watched that. Man, what a beautiful, magnificent, showy, grandiose offering that Cain is giving as he is a man of the field. Okay? So when God rejected this, I think, elaborate offering, when God rejected that, Cain was angry, depressed. Why? What was behind the offering? I think Cain was trying to say to mom and dad, Adam and Eve, I have conquered the ground that was cursed because of your sin, and by the sweat of my brow, by weeding and harvesting and planting and plowing and patience of seasons and by my hard hands and my calloused hand I have worked and worked and worked and worked and look what I've done I have defeated the ground that was cursed by your sin look at it mom and dad look at what I have produced also I think he was saying Look at my puny little brother what he's done he's killed that helpless little lamb there and all the blood and all the mess Man, I'm so superior to him. Don't you see it? And I think maybe the bottom of this was Cain expected God to say, that's my boy. I'm so proud of you. Look at this elaborate offering from all that you have done. But God rejected it out of hand. No, no, no. I won't receive this. That, I believe, is the reason Cain got mad and went into depression. Now, I want to right here to discover what I think I discovered. This is the beginning of amazing grace. Chapter 1 and 2, we see God giving Adam and Eve a chance, even after him booting them out of paradise. That's grace, the slaying of the animal. That's grace. But this is amazing grace. The grace that God shows toward Saul. Not Saul, but Cain. I want you to look at it. Look at the grace that he shows 
toward Cain. It's amazing. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will be not, you will not be accepted. If you do not do well, if you do well, you will be accepted. That's very simple. Somebody says, oh, I'm depressed. I don't know why. Ask God. He'll tell you. Zip, you'll know in a hurry. Yep, works every time. Oh, I, oh yes, just get alone. Just think about it. I'm angry. I don't know why I'm so angry. I, just ask God. He'll show you. Oh, it works every time. Sure. You don't believe it? Just try it. I remember years ago, a woman came down the aisle. She was crying. She said, Pastor, I'm down here. I just got some sin. I don't know what it is. I said, guess at it. You know, she guessed it the first time. It was really amazing, wasn't it? So God said to Cain, Cain, man, if you do well, you got clean hands, pure heart. I'm in the center of your life. You live your life the base of truth. Hey, hey, your offer will be accepted, but that's not where you are. Your offer was given for there's no business like show business. That's what your offer is all about. And then we see the amazing grace of God because now God warns Cain. When God speaks audibly, warns Cain, it's really something. Look at the warning that God gives to Cain. It's a powerful thing. And he says, and if you do not well, sin crouches at your door. He's saying to Cain, sin crouches. And it desire is for you. Sin wants to consume you, but you should have victory. You should rule over it. Amazing grace, amazing grace. He said, sin is crouching at your door, and the word there in the Hebrew has to do with a wild animal. How many of you own a cat or have ever owned a cat? Lift your hand, I have. We've got a lot of cats, and one cat was named Claus, and Claus, I think like a lot of cats, would go and kill squirrels and birds and bring them at the door. I'd come in, I always had to pick up a bird or a squirrel that Claus had captured for us. Brought the door of our house. Some of you are familiar with that. And, and, and cats are something. And this is a picture of an animal, a lion, a panther, or something crouching. And, and God says to Cain, here is an animal crouching. This is sin crouching for you. Now notice something. When your cat spots something and is stalking, your cat gets down. Your cat gets smaller. The cat crouches down. The point here, God sees your sin as big and you see your sin and I see my sin as small, just a small thing. And you know, we take lust and put a little ball and put it on the side. It's no big thing. It can lead to adultery. We take greed and put it on one side. It's no small thing. It's a little bitty thing in my life. It can lead to take advantage of people to get so sin crouching is a picture of, a, of an animal, of a cat that is crouching there who appears to be very small, doesn't he? He wants to get small so the prey won't see it. And so we see our sin as small and others, and God sees our sin as big. But sin hides itself, doesn't it? Sin seeks to not be seen. So God's saying to Cain, Cain, there's a wild animal, a wild cat that's crouching there that wants to consume you, wants to get you. He said he wants to eat you up. He wants to swallow you up. 
That's what sin does. Every sin we commit has the possibility of an addiction. Every sin. Just name anything. Get the roll out. Call them out. It has the possibility of addiction. And you see, once I have sin, and then I turn away, and once I have sin, and I have sin, and I can turn away, once I have sin, and I have sin, and then somewhere along the way, sin will have me, and sin will have you. That's what addiction is. So God warns Cain. He said, Cain, sin is crouching there. Sin seems very small, Cain. I just reject your offering, but it's really a big thing, Cain, in my sight. And sin wants to swallow you up and ruin your life, Cain. But he says you're going to have victory over it. It doesn't have to be like that. Isn't that terrific? And that's true of all of us. Paul tells us, he that is within you, that's Christ, is greater than he that is in the world. We have the capacity in our lives to have victory. And we know sin is crouching. It appears to be very small. It's much bigger than that. And sin will gobble us up, but we can have victory through Jesus Christ if we use the power that's in the life of everyone who walks with Christ. Then we see that's amazing grace. God warning Saul. But what does Saul do? It's just, you say, well, I just can't believe that. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Oh, God warned him, grace. And Cain killed his brother Abel. Way to take care of the competition, just wipe it out, eliminate it. Then the Lord said to Cain, more grace here, where is Abel your brother? And Cain lied, I do not know. Cain already had invented Webster's word of the year, post-truth. <laughs> I don't know where he is. Then he asked that very well-known question, am I my brother's keeper? You know, we're not our brother's keeper because we realize to reach out to people, to help people, to love people, when their life is in a mess, you'll end up in the middle of that mess yourself. And it sure is expensive to get in a lot of these messes, isn't it? So therefore, we don't keep our brother. We don't reach to our brother. We back up and we say some little pious thing, I pray for you. That's good, but prayer without legs, without action, when we have legs and we can take action, am I my brother's keeper? Then we have the response. And he said, what have you done? This is God. And he goes on, he talks about the ground, the punishment of Cain. You'll no longer be a farmer. You no longer have that to your credit. And he says, you're going to be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. Then he comes to verse number 18. Number 13, and Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out this land from the face of the ground, 
and I, and I shall be hidden from your faith. In other words, I can no longer farm. I can no longer go in your presence. And Cain says, I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Here's more grace, 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 grace from God. Amazing, amazing, amazing grace. And the Lord said to him, now Cain doesn't confess sin. He doesn't repent sin. He doesn't show any regret, but God still reaches out with grace and grace and grace. It's just, just amazing grace here. Even wandering in the land of Nod, God still exercised mercy and grace. How many of you have ever seen or heard the music or perhaps seen the musical uh, Le Miserable? Le Mis, lift your hand. Great music, great story. Most of us, if you've seen it or heard the music, we've forgotten the story behind it. Victor Hugo wrote this book, and it's a book about a guy named Jean Valjean. John, when he was a young boy, stole a loaf of bread to feed his little sister who was starving to death. He was found out about and put in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. When he got out of a prison, he couldn't get a job. He was a convict. His life wandered around, and finally a kindly bishop picked him up and took him in began to love him and encourage him and help him. But he'd been around thieves and convicts and the immoral people so long. One night he saw the silver spoons and forks in the cabinet there in the bishop's home and he took those and put them in his pocket in the middle of the night, he ran. He was caught by the police and they recognized him as John Valjean, the convict, and they took him back to the bishop to return the forks and the knives. And when he went back in, the bishop said, John Valjean, welcome, my brother. I, I couldn't understand th that when you left, you did not take the candlesticks that I gave you. You took the, the spoons and the forks, but I gave you these candlesticks. They're silver too. They're worth 400 francs. Well, the police were stunned and they left. <laughs> and the bishop said to John Valjean, he said, oh, John, he said, I have given you this so you'll have money so you'll become an honest man. He said, but more than that, John, I have bought your soul and I have brought your soul out of hell into light and I've given your soul to God. Go and live like that. And the rest of the story is a story of John Valjean a changed man, being his brother's brother everywhere, sacrificially giving his life. Amazing story. Amazing story of the grace of God. Listen, if you're not really worshiping, the problem is not I need a new book, I need a new method, I need a new place. It's with all of us. Hands, heart, the center of our lives, living on truth. You see, when we go to worship, God, first of all, has you and me to deal with the trash in our lives, and then he'll open up the heavens, and he'll bring us out of the land of nod, of wondering, in the land of service and love, and we'll learn to speak the language of heaven. You know what the language of heaven is? 
So I said, well, we don't speak Spanish or French or Farsi. Or what's going to be the language of heaven? I can tell you what is. It's the language of love. And we have to learn to speak the language of love in Christ on this earth. So be we ready to speak the language of love forever and forever in heaven. Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. Through worship, he'll open our eyes. We begin to see people as God sees them and see ourselves as God sees us. And perhaps we'll begin, we won't be fluent. <laughs> we'll still stutter a lot. Perhaps begin to, by the grace of God, in this life, to speak the language of love, the language of eternity. Well, before we leave you today, Dr. Young is here to answer a couple of questions coming out of the message we've just heard. Dr. Young, your message today said a lot about making sure the heart behind your worship is pure. What are some practical ways to refocus our heart? Well, I've mentioned it many times. You, a practical way is to begin every morning and, and with the Lord. That's that narrow worship, that private worshiping time we do every day. That begins the day in the right way. C.S. Lewis said that every morning so many of us wake up, we're being attacked by wild animals. What does he mean? He's saying, and I've experienced this many times, perhaps you have too, you wake up in the morning, hear these animals coming. You need to do this. You need to say this. You need to go there. You need to spend your passion, your energy there. People, events pulling on us. Lewis says if we'll begin the morning in a quiet place, in the Word, with prayer, with listening, it's amazing how those wild animals will be pushed away and you'll be able to make wise decisions about your day and about your time, about priority, and God will give you discernment, and that will change your life. Thanks, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.